We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website are directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group. What are you thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. Therefore focused on reform with a weak spot for perfectionism. Paid close, close attention to any discussion of sin. And so sin is the topic of my lesson today. I remember thinking there was bad, and then there was sin. And sin was like really, really bad, like make God mad bad. Might go to burn in eternal hell if you do that bad. So yeah, I was laser focused on sin. I was the person who didn't even want to get a B in school, so hell was just entirely out of the question. <laughs> It seemed like the sin things got some extra, extra attention from my parents. I recall trying to shoplift a funnel. Don't ask me why. I mean, a funnel. <laughs> Not candy, mind you, a funnel. Um, at the age of five from a store. And that was a whole go back in and talk to the manager thing that led to such immense shame. Yes, shame. Shame seemed to be the feeling we were going for when it came to sin. Lying, stealing, disrespecting my parents, anything sexual outside of committed relationships, inflicting pain on innocent things, all of those seemed to reach sin level with them. It was very important to steer clear, and I did, until I didn't, and then I kept it secret and felt shame. Later, when I was in that Bible reading phase, that I, reali uh, phase I realized there were ten commandments that added a layer of detail. I was feeling pretty good about those. I did not covet my neighbor, worship idols, or make graven images. I was not committing adultery, and I got in the car when we went to church. I did have a bad habit of taking the Lord's name in vain, but I really, really, really hoped and doubted the scales would tip towards hell over that one. Later, I, I heard there were seven deadly sins, and I was like, oh, cool, an actual list. This is going to be great, helpful. I was a little disturbed to hear they were kind of vague. Gluttony, avarice, greed, envy, wrath, sloth, lust. Like, was two pieces of cake gluttony? If I was really jealous that Jenna could get her hair to wing back perfectly on both sides, was that envy? I was a little worried about these details, but not too worried because I was young and heaven and hell seemed really far away. But of course, merely getting into heaven was not my focus. I wanted to be the good kid, the example. And I didn't have a lot of problems upholding that standard until college. For whatever reason, and trust me, I considered all the reasons, boys did not pick me in high school. I worked hard to embody conventional standards of female attractiveness, and I went to the parties, and I did the things. But I was a terrible flirter. I didn't get that whole eye contact thing. And I was terrible at silly banter. Three minutes into a convo, and I wanted to talk about something substantial. So all convos lasted about four minutes. <laughs> Finally, in college, a guy did pick me. And he was nice, cute, smart, and tall. And let me tell you, I intended to hold on to that one might be the last one to come along. Four or five months into our relationship, 
hugs had turned to kisses and kisses to touches. And next thing you know, I was up against a real sin boundary. Premarital sex was a sin. I had been told many times. I had also been told that a man could only have a fulfilling life if she got married. I had also been told men have needs. And if you don't meet them, they will find someone who will. And so I was scared. Looking back on it, I was more scared than lustful. And that should have been a sign. (laughs) But I had never centered what I actually wanted in my decision making, so it was easy to ignore. I coped by getting very philosophical about what marriage meant. I went to the Bible and realized, surprise, it wasn't very clear. (laughs) You had people who were married in the Bible, but it wasn't clear how they got that way. Were they married by the church or by the government? Which one was the real one in terms of sexual behavior? I decided maybe the act of sexual intercourse was the real marrying of two people. And you might see where this was going. (laughs) I could have sex with my boyfriend, but I damn well better marry him because in the eyes of God, we were already married. And so, no surprise here, I did have sex with my boyfriend. And I did marry him. Sin bullet dodged by an expertly contrived loophole. Imagine my shock when, you know, as you get older, you can talk to your parents about things you couldn't talk to them about because you're too old for them to, like, punish. (laughs) So um, imagine my shock when I worked up the courage to ask my mom, Mom, what percent of seniors in your graduating class of 1957 were having premarital sex? And she scrunched up her face. Get a number in your head. What number do you think it is? She scrunched up her face and thought about it and said, "Mm, probably 90%. (laughs) I was dumbfounded. What's up with all these people telling you not to sin and then sinning? And then I remembered the big fundamentalist escape hatch. No matter what you did, there seemed to be this get out of jail free card you could exercise if you really found yourself in a pickle. After getting confirmed and baptized, you could still screw around, sin all you want, and then later go to an altar call and give your life to Jesus, act right after that, and you could still get into heaven. Handy. Handy. When I started deconstructing my faith, one of the first things to go, or to get the old heave-ho, was hell. As I've said many times before, I just couldn't believe that God would create us, give us free will, and then condemn us to hell for wrongly using it. When the hell domino falls, the sin domino is not far behind. So I was left with the question, why is sin a big deal if you don't have to worry about hell? (laughs) Heck, what even is sin? How would you define it? The first thing I'll say is even before we define it, it is pretty much inevitable. Hard as Angie has tried to be perfect, I want to assure you she has failed many, many times. Many of my sins come from existing in a broken system. Just take my earlier example. I'm a woman in a patriarchal system. Vanity was inevitable. I can't tell you the number of hours I spent staring in the mirror as a female in this culture. I could have 18 doctoral degrees if I could get those hours back. 
But the patriarchal system told me that in order to have value or any sort of good life, I desperately needed to attract the attention of men. And the way to attract them was visually. And so I contorted myself into a shapeshifter with makeup, wired undergarments, and spent untold thousands on products to reach the feminine ideal. And I stared into any mirror, mirror I could find to assess how my obsessive project was going at any given moment. If vanity is a sin, I plead guilty. And it wasn't my fault. Can you imagine how marginalized people in other communities have had to compromise their true selves to merely survive in a broken system of racism, imperialism, late-stage capitalism, ableism, and homophobia? Other sins are inevitable because it's developmentally appropriate. The easiest example of this is a newborn baby. These tiny humans are depraved in their inhumanity. <laughs> they are physical parasites on their mothers. And then, once brought into the world, have the gall to wake her up every two hours, once born, to feed off of her. Have they no empathy? <laughs> no, they don't. If they don't eat regularly, they will quite literally die. This is the time to be a self-centered demon and let there be no peace until your survival is ensured. If you buy that justification for sin, apply the same principle to adolescents who are desperately trying to summon the courage to live independently in the world and have raging hormones, and you've got teenage sin, sin covered too. Just defining sin is hard because the exact same physical action can be a sin or a generous gift of grace, and you really can't tell which unless you know the, the motivations of the people involved. A lot of my sin has actually been a byproduct of my personality, and it looked entirely virtuous to those observing it. I'm an Enneagram One. It manifests itself as reform-minded in me, and I am a bit of an avoidant. Avoidants are uncomfortable with their emotions, and as such are prone to be workaholics as a means of avoiding connection. You take those two, add a career in teaching, and bam, you have dysfunction wrapped in a cloak of virtue. I assure you my family members did not always see my dedication to my profession as virtuous. And my children at times felt abandoned. Is it a sin to make your children feel that way? Does sin actually require intention? Or can you sin without intention? And so we he here we are, almost to the end of this lesson, and I haven't even defined sin. I've hedged the question and saved it for last because I actually don't know. <laughs> I probably don't know because I'm not that worried about it anymore. My sinning is inevitable. I don't believe I will suffer interminable hell for it. And I have a sense it's not that big of a deal, but I should still pay attention to it. So why? My intuition tells me that whatever sin is, it causes afflictive feelings in me. And if I were attuned enough to recognize those feelings and brave enough to observe and name them and braver still to forthrightly address them, we would all be better off. 
In fact, the identifying mark of early Christians was the fact they were one-hearted. Let me explain. In ancient Greece and Rome, there was the idea that you had a public face and a private one. These were two very separate spheres, and it was like each person was literally two-faced, though they called it two-hearted. The same guy making incredible speeches about courage and loyalty in the public forum could be beating his slaves out of anger in private. The two were seen as entirely unrelated and not hypocritical. One thing people said about the earliest followers of Jesus that made them seem quite radical is that they were one-hearted. They merged and lived transparently in every aspect of their lives. This is part of why they scared the crap out of the establishment. Being a follower of Jesus meant you could not hide your faults or pretend to be what you were not. And that means you had to kill your ego. You have to kill your ego, die, and be reborn to a new transparent life. And a lot of egos are just not ready for that. I remember my early meetings with Doug reflected this subtle but radical shift. In the past, when I had met with the preacher man, the meetings had the following assumptions at work. I was a sinner. The preacher was the teacher on God's behalf, and I needed to humble myself before that authority. When I met with Doug, I would ask, how are you, as a typical greeting. And he would say something like, well, I'm having insert afflictive emotion here about insert typically private situation here. And it's really hard, <laughs> sometimes really private, and it's really hard because my ego wants to react badly this way, but I know I need to do this other thing. And I would be kind of startled, <laughs> and at the same time extremely relieved. Because if the preacher man could confess all his dirt, I could too. And I actually think leading by example this way is one of the most powerful things he has done as the leader of this spiritual community. It has been a yeast that multiplied, and now we have a very authentic and rare spiritual community. Since I'm an avoidant, it's weird that I have any friends. I'm a pretty terrible friend who often doesn't text back. I've, spoke, I've spoken before about how just being in the same town and job for so long was critical to helping me avoid isolation. One thing I know for sure, the friends I do have seem to value that I'm one-hearted. I'm transparent. And so we get into real conversations and deal with the real afflictive feelings we have as we understand them. We get deep, and that's what spiritual friendship is really about. And a lot of people are looking for that these days. It's the gift I have to give, and I am happy to give it. I think we might be created here with a specific spiritual fingerprint, a specific point of view and a set of gifts that we can bring to bear in a troubled world. And sin might just be anything that blocks that energy and prevents that creation from being fully at work in the world. Broken systems and developmental realities might, for a time, force us to create a false self to survive. And that process might create sin for a time. But if we can let that ego die away as we age and realize we are truly safe and loved, we can become the true manifestation of creation and truly realize the beauty of God's grace. So I say, go forth boldly and sin, sisters and brothers. 
and then realize the limitations of that life and submit to a growth process that will allow you to be one-hearted, aligned with creation, and at peace to the greatest degree possible in a deeply troubled world. Then perhaps we can go about being the repairers of the world we are called by our faith to be. So, indwelling divine, let us turn our hearts and minds to our afflictive emotions. May we welcome them and let them do the work of showing us the limitations of our personalities. And in so doing, may our actions, over time, better align with the incredible capacity of divine light and life. Amen. If you would, please prepare your offerings and let us remember, as we say each week, there is always good return when we invest in spiritual community. We give one another our time and our energy and our love and our dollars, and then the community, together, we take those gifts, we amplify them, and we give them back to one another in the form of this environment in which we thrive, transform, flourish, and grow. We all give online now. At the top of the website, there's a donate button. Please do. And those of you who are online, uh, we are going to dismiss you, and then we're going to have a discussion here in the room. And uh, we invite you to uh, have your own discussion on Zoom. Uh, if you go to the front page of our website, you will find the link there. It's called, What Are You Thinking uh, on Zoom? And uh, when you get there, it might ask you for a password. If it does, that password word is 1417, 1417. Again, it's like we said about the newcomer thing. It's awkward to show up at a new thing if you don't know you're going to be accepted. But I know the people who are there. And I know they're going to make it very comfortable for you, so I hope you will try it out. It's a great way to get to know people and to uh, process the things that we're learning together. So uh, let's go ahead and dismiss the folks who are online. If you would, please put your hand on your heart. And let's remember that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine, which means within us is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. All those things are within us because we carry divine light. And if you would also then extend your other hand to our city, let's look for opportunities to share what's already in us with the people that we live with, work with, go to school with. Let's look for opportunities to repair and heal our worlds. Amen. God bless you all. You all are dismissed. We are not. If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.